This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Back in April, you may have heard about the bride, located in, surprise to no one, Florida, who drugged her wedding guests. As weed has become more socially acceptable, it's also becoming more accessible. I've known people to celebrate their special day with a special strain or just in their night by enjoying a wedding cake joint. If I were to host a wedding, I would have an open bar and an open dispensary. It's safer to enjoy, you'll be able to drive home after a couple of hours, you won't puke, you can keep dancing, and just eat all of the cake and finger foods. It's pretty ideal. Just as no one should force booze on a person, you wouldn't force weed on people. But that's exactly what 42-year-old bride Dania Svoboda and her 31-year-old caterer Jocelyn Bryant did for Dania's wedding. Or should I say, weeding? Oh boy, thank you. Even though recreational marijuana is illegal in Florida, these ladies didn't care. Utilizing medical dispensaries, they wanted to surprise their guests with what we can assume they thought would be a good time. What a terrible idea. Very much. After consuming the THC-laced olive oil that had been used to cook the lasagna, some of the guests started to feel odd. Dizzy, foggy, they were stoned. Now, I'm no prude when it comes to weed. I smoke it pretty consistently, managing my anxiety, body pains, stomach aches, female cramps, and as an aid to help me focus on work. And I could go on and on, counting all the ways I love thee. Emily is used to our house being somewhat foggy, but on recording days, I try to make the house smell less smoky because she doesn't partake. Unlike drinking, smoking involves everyone around you. So out of respect, I limit my smoking in her presence. So the idea of tricking people into getting high is pretty aggravating. At first, you may even think this seems pretty harmless, but there's a ripple effect that they didn't consider. If someone like my mother were to be surprise stoned, it would be almost assured she would have a panic attack. Imagine if you get someone stoned who's sober, in recovery, taking medications, getting a pee test for work or a new job or on probation. For a child. Or a child. What if it hit them as they were driving home and they got in a wreck or got pulled over? It's just so rude and offensive to smoking culture and all of those guests. This, to me, at least, is no different than, like, roofing someone. While very different and not resulting in death, the drugged wedding had me recalling the Tylenol murders of the 80s a case that was extremely well-known and shocking to the country. But did you know that not long after the Tylenol murders of Chicago in 1982, there was a similar string of mysterious deaths in Washington in 1986? Well, neither did I. So for today's story, I'll be refreshing your memory about the Tylenol tampering, which led to laws that were used to prosecute a murderer who had used a harmless, everyday product as a vessel for poison. Since the late 1950s, children and adults have enjoyed the ease of pain relief brought by the pill, tablet, or liquid form of Tylenol. Bottles of medication had been purchased for decades without a thought, except for how much better the user would soon be feeling. 
No child-proof lids, no foil closure, no wads of cotton, just medicine. The terror all began in September 1982, when 12-year-old Chicagoan Mary Kellerman woke up with a slight cold. Hoping to relieve her symptoms, her parents gave her one Tylenol. Within hours, she was dead. Postal worker Adam Janis was unaware of Mary's death, which had occurred at 7 a.m., just a few hours later, Adam would be taken to the hospital where his wife mentioned he hadn't been feeling well while at work, so he grabbed some Tylenol on his way home. Even though he was in the care of the hospital, they couldn't do anything to save him, and he died. The family assumed the cause had been a major heart attack. Devastated, they returned home. After sobbing and mourning, his brother Stanley and his wife Teresa both had overwhelming head and heartaches, so they both took extra-strength Tylenol from the same bottle Adam had. Soon after, Stanley and Teresa were both dead, leaving the Janus family in shock at the staggering loss. Within 24 hours, 27-year-old Mary Rayner, who was recovering from giving birth, 35-year-old Paula Prince, who had just completed a red-eye flight, and 31-year-old Mary McFarland, who had been suffering from a migraine, all died after taking Tylenol. It was the detective work of a nurse at the hospital that actually connected the deaths to Tylenol. Hearing that all three victims of the Janus family had taken pills, she risked her job by going to the Janus's house. There, she found a new bottle of Tylenol. Counting out the pills, six had been taken. Three adults, who should have each taken two pills, were now dead. She knew there was something wrong with the medicine, so she reported it to the police. After testing the medication, it was discovered they had been laced with cyanide. Testing the bottles from the Janice's home and Mary's, investigators were only more confused when the bottles had been manufactured in and shipped out from different plants. Showing there was no manufacturing connection, it was decided the culprit must have been taking the bottles off the shelf, putting the poison in the capsules, and returning the bottle to the store, where it was then purchased by an unknowing buyer. Even though all of the victims had been in Chicago, once the connection was made to Tylenol, all 31 million bottles were removed from shelves across America. This caused the definition of a nationwide panic. A few more tainted capsules were found on shelves. Luckily, there didn't appear to be any additional victims. There had never been a case of product tampering to this degree before. The FBI began investigating immediately and created a task force, but they were lacking leads. Eventually, they had two main suspects. First was Roger Arnold. Someone had called in to report they had heard the 48-year-old dockhand say suspicious things regarding the Tylenol deaths while running his mouth at a bar. When investigated, it was found he actually worked with one of the victim's fathers. Searching his home, books regarding chemistry and DIY projects were discovered. He was also in possession of other potentially damning equipment like beakers. When asked to take a polygraph, he refused. With the attention the case was garnering, Roger was becoming a household name. Under public pressure, he suffered a mental health crisis. Seeking revenge for his life being destroyed, he decided it had to have been the bar's owner who had reported his conversation to the FBI. So Roger decided to kill Marty Sinclair, said owner. In the summer of 1983, Roger went to the bar and in a case of mistaken identity, shot John Stanisha. He was sentenced to 30 years for John's murder, only serving 15 before passing away in 2008. Then Johnson & Johnson, the owner of Tylenol, received a letter. It read, Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. 
And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little. And there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I have spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account 84-49-597 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you could possibly do. He's cocky. (laughs) Of course, Johnson & Johnson immediately turned the letter over to the FBI, where they launched an urgent investigation. After a manhunt, they were able to trace the letter to a James Lewis in New York. His fingerprints were a match for those recovered from the documents. Turned out the bank account number he had provided was out of revenge. It had belonged to Fred McCahey, who owed James's wife a little over $500. He had hoped to ruin Fred's life a little by having him investigated by the FBI. The problem with that was that the letter wasn't the only piece of evidence that made James look like the killer. James had a violent history, having chased his mother with an axe when he was younger He attempted to take his life by overdosing on anison, which is basically like Tylenol, which led to a stay in a mental health facility where he was diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia. He claimed his behaviors had all been done on purpose as an act in an effort to dodge the draft. Keep your eyes out on Patreon because I'll probably be doing a mini on this guy. Before the Tylenol incident, he had already been investigated but not indicted for the murder of Raymond West, who was found in his own attic, dismembered. And there were other red flags. James's wife had a business that involved pill-making. He had been accused of ID theft. He had spent time in Chicago before and then right after the murders. As bad as all of that might sound, there was never enough evidence to prosecute. For the attempted extortion via the letter, James was sentenced to 20 years, serving 13 and being released in 1995. In 2010, he and his wife submitted, after trying to get the courts to block it, DNA samples to the FBI. I can't find any results, but as he was not arrested, I'm assuming that he was not a match. Since no connection could be made between the victims and a possible killer, it appeared they were totally random. That's why Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber, was thought to be a suspect for some time. He, too, submitted DNA in 2011 to prove his innocence. Well, he didn't really want to prove anything. What he wanted was to stop the government from auctioning off his personal belongings. He gave the DNA, but they still went through with the auction. Again, since he wasn't charged, I can only assume he was not a match. To this day, the Tylenol-related deaths of the seven Chicago victims remains unsolved. In 1983, Congress passed the Tylenol Bill, making product tampering a federal offense. A little bit of good to come from such terrible loss. By the end of the 80s, tampering preventative measures were in place to keep anyone else from being hurt. That was the idea, at least. Companies and law enforcement thought they had done what was necessary to keep consumers safe, until multiple deaths in Washington proved them wrong. For this case, there are plenty of articles, shows, and other media to use as a resource. In addition to those sources, I primarily used Greg Olson's book, Bitter Almonds. Since he went to the area to get sometimes exclusive interviews with those involved, it seemed like the most reliable source for information. 
There is literally 16 times more information in that book, so you'll have to check it out if you want to dive deep. June 5, 1986, was an average, mild, late spring day in Auburn, Washington. 52-year-old Bruce Nichols' day had been average as well. He had gone to work at the Washington Department of Transportation, a job he had just started. Arriving home shortly after 4 p.m., the afternoon continued as normal. His wife of the last decade, Stella, made Bruce his dinner, which he ate prior to taking a shower. He then returned to the living room and watched some TV before heading to the den, where he liked to spend the twilight hours watching hawks of the area go hunting for a dinner of their own. Bruce had been having headaches of late, on and off for a few months, forcing daily consumption of pain medication. After bird watching, Bruce went to the bathroom, took a few Excedrin, and went back to the living room. Shortly after, he collapsed to the floor. Having seen her husband on the ground, Stella ran to call 911. It was 5.10 p.m. Answering the call, the 911 operator heard a woman begging for help for her husband, who, as best she could tell, was possibly having a seizure. The volunteer firefighters were the first to head to the mobile home at 17807 Southeast 346th. As they went down the dirt road, the first responders were struggling to find the right address, and they were surprised they didn't see anyone waving them down, as tends to be the actions of someone anxiously awaiting help for a loved one. Instead, they were surprised to spot Stella inside the house, peering out from behind the window shades. They didn't have time to worry about a wife's behavior, though. They needed to tend to Bruce, who they found in a robe laying on the floor in front of the couch. Still alive, he was gasping for air. What caught the medics off guard first was Bruce's odd coloring. He looked nearly sunburnt red in the face, but from the neck down, he was ghostly white. He still had a pulse, but the breathing had gone from labored to non-existent, so the medics applied an oxygen bag to his face. While they worked, waiting for the ambulance, Stella's fear had her twaddling on about Bruce's night in hopes it would help the medics understand what was going on. She was telling them her husband had been dealing with headaches, had taken daily meds for it, was enjoying watching the birds. Then she went out of the room and returned with a pack of cigarettes. Could it have been a cigarette? Pulling one out of the pack, she started to break it apart like a scene out of Breaking Bad, looking for some sort of foreign object. The mind focuses on funny things when in crisis. Since the medics were too busy trying to save Bruce, Stella moved on to the bottle of Excedrin. Maybe something was wrong with the pills, just like what happened a few years prior in Chicago. This stuck out to the team because she asked about or referenced the medication at least six times. Although Stella was focused on the cause of Bruce's ailment, Overall, she was calm. Perhaps she didn't realize just how dire the situation was. Bruce's condition only worsened as they worked on him. He still had blood pressure but was unconscious, leaving them thinking maybe he was overdosing or perhaps it was some sort of stroke. As the symptoms didn't match up to anything precise, they adjusted their thinking. Maybe this was something external, not internal. As they searched for bleeding, his blood pressure crashed. They performed a tracheostomy and gave him an ephedrine shot. Because of the severity of his condition, a helicopter was sent to land on the Nichols property. Stella stood in the field, watching her husband be lifted away to a hospital in Seattle. She drove herself the 30 minutes north to join him. That same night, the volunteer firefighters were back in their living quarters when they received a call, and it was Stella. The medics assumed she was calling to give them an update on Bruce, 
As they gave their condolences, learning he had indeed died at the hospital, it turned out Stella was calling for a different reason. She was missing a wool blanket from her house and was wondering if they had accidentally taken it when they left. Uh, that's a little odd. Well, you know, you're, you've, you've suffered a severe loss. Maybe you're just not thinking clearly. Okay, we'll see. They hadn't, and they felt bad for how in shock Stella must have been to take the time to call about a blanket mere hours after her husband's sudden death. An autopsy had been performed on Bruce, and it was determined he had died from emphysema. If the shock of losing Bruce wasn't enough, Stella really couldn't believe what she was being told. The reason being was that Bruce had just started a new job with the state, which had required a physical, of which he passed. It seemed unimaginable that someone could get a clean bill of health and within just a couple of months be dead from emphysema. Bruce Nichol had been adopted when he was just a week old in June of 1934. He grew up in what could be considered a child's dream on a 20-acre apple orchard adorned with farm animals. But the landscape was about all that would be idyllic in Bruce's life. By 15, he was drinking. He eventually joined and then went AWOL from the Marines. Marriage was a tumultuous aspect of Bruce's life. Along the way, he married Ruby, Linda, Mary, and Phyllis. Overall, the marriages ended up giving him two sons. Phyllis was Bruce's wife at the time when he met Stella, a local bar rat. And I say that with all due respect. Everyone in town knew Stella. She was the queen of local bars, usually spending her nights flirting and possibly spending time in the parking lot with different gentlemen callers. There's no confirmation Stella was a sex worker, but relationships of that nature have been implied. But those rumors didn't bother Bruce, nor did the fact that he was still married. Besides, he had demons of his own. He had a proclivity for pornography, had spent time in jail for driving under the influence, and had an alcohol addiction. Stella would call him a weekend alcoholic, a habit that would eventually cost him about 250 bucks a week. Love prevailed all, and on September 11, 1976, two years after meeting and two divorces later, 42-year-old Bruce and 33-year-old Stella were wed. They loved one another, but that didn't keep Stella at home or faithful. For Bruce, there was an understanding that his outgoing lady just needed to sow a few wild oats. The 80s had some changes in store for the couple. Buying the mobile home on a plot of land in Washington, they were excited for what the new space would bring. There was just one thing in the way, Bruce's drinking. It had become a major issue, even if it did only occur on the weekends. So Stella gave him an ultimatum. It was her or the bottle. Bruce's love for his wife prevailed, and he soon sought treatment. Sobriety may have been what Stella asked for, but the result was not what she expected. As a couple, they had always gone out together almost as often as Stella went out on her own. They were social, outgoing, party people. But when Bruce got sober, he took it very seriously and no longer drank at all, didn't keep alcohol in the house, and wouldn't really go out, forcing Stella to go out more instead of staying home and spending quality time with Bruce. Not sure what she was expecting. You know, some people have to avoid the temptation altogether. Yeah, I think because she was a, you know, party girl and she could handle herself, I think she kind of expected that he would figure out how to handle his drinking, mm. you know, and not that he would go fully sober. Right. This kind of strain in a relationship wasn't new to Stella. Bruce wasn't the only one who enjoyed getting married. 
Back when they had met in 74, her then-husband Robert Warren had the same struggles with her that Bruce would. He proclaimed her to be a nymphomaniac. As Bruce had with Phyllis, Stella divorced Robert so they could be together. Stella was hoping this relationship would not head in the same direction. Perhaps Bruce's newest job as a heavy equipment operator for the state would bring in more money and that would help alleviate their stressors. Sadly, they would never know. When Bruce died, Stella had the burden of informing family and friends. One of the first stops she made was to her adult daughter, Cindy. Giving a statement that caused confusion, Stella told Cindy, quote, Bruce is dead. I know what you're thinking and no. Oddly, for most of Bruce and Stella's friends, they ended up learning about his death via a Stella drive-by after the funeral. Driving through town, she would holler at a friend or go to their home and share the sad news. For some, if they asked about a service, they were shocked to hear one had already occurred. In most cases, the sad news was paired with the bizarre cause of death according to the coroner, emphysema. Not everyone was surprised by Bruce's passing. His own father even hinted to the funeral director that he felt Stella was to blame for his son's death. The director attributed the comment to crisis, just another strange thing said to him at a service. Those who had cared about Bruce and inquired about the cause were equally shocked. Sure, Bruce smoked, but he seemed to be in good health whenever they last saw him. That's how Stella felt, too. Here was her husband, who, besides suffering from what appeared to be stress-induced headaches, seemed to be healthy. And now he was dead. She was right to be suspicious, by the way. Even though most patients with emphysema don't catch it until the later stages, it is a gradual disease that can take around five years to become terminal. Which was why, when just six days later, when Stella heard the news of a local woman's death, she called 911. The answer to Bruce's real cause of death had to have been the same as Sue Snow's. It was the early morning of June 11, 1986, and 40-year-old Sue Snow was doing her usual morning routine when one of her daughters, 15-year-old Haley, popped into her mother's bathroom to say good morning. After exchanging greetings, Haley went back to her bathroom to take a shower and to get ready for school. Sue stayed in her master bath and continued to put on her makeup and do her hair while wearing her robe, soon to be exchanged for the business-appropriate attire worthy of a vice president of the North Auburn Puget Sound Bank. As Haley dried off and began to dress after taking her shower, she realized she could hear her mother's sink running, a concerning sound as Haley had heard the sink come on right before she got into the shower. Remembering she had also heard a strange thud when she was bathing but had thought nothing of it, she decided to go check on her mother. Going into the bathroom, Haley discovered Sue collapsed on the floor. Her head had landed on the shower track, and one arm lay across her chest. The curling of her fingers was notable. They were so far back, Haley was certain it had to hurt, and she even tried to pull them down into the rightful place, but with no success. Sue's eyes were fixed on a corner in the room. A pulse was found by CPR-trained Haley, but there was no breathing. Suddenly, Sue had a huge gasp for air, but there was never an exhale. Not sure what to do, Haley called a friend who told her to call 911 and that she would be there soon. It was 6.43 a.m. when the call for help was made and 6.47 when the emergency personnel arrived at her home at 1404 North Street Northeast in Auburn. Making their way upstairs to the bathroom, medics found Sue in a catatonic state, 
strewn on the ground like a purple floor mat. Just as they had with Bruce, this medical team was dealing with a non-responsive person who didn't appear to have health issues that would cause whatever was going on. Like Bruce, oxygen was applied. Looking for an explanation, it was thought that perhaps Sue had slipped on a wet spot and hit her head. Maybe she's showing less common signs of a traumatic brain injury. But Haley shot down that idea rather quickly. Everyone knew her mother would only shower in the evening. Looking for signs of a possible overdose, Haley again assured them there was no drug use. That was, except for her daily Excedrin. Following the path laid out by Bruce, they performed a tracheostomy and had Sue airlifted to the Pacific Northwest's largest trauma center, the Harborview Medical Center. Haley's morning had been such a whirlwind of crisis, she didn't know what to do with herself when it came time to leave the house to go be with her mother. So she grabbed her homework, hoping she could complete it while she waited. It's not that that is so significant, but just an illustration of what the mind does when in crisis mode. Sadly, homework would be the last thing on Haley's mind that day. After bringing Sue in, her eyes wide, breathing slowing, she only got worse. Shortly after arriving, the doctor informed her family she was in a coma. A very short time later, she was declared brain dead and put on life support. Paul, Sue's husband, who had also arrived at the medical center, couldn't believe what he was hearing. When he got the call his presence was needed because of a medical issue, he assumed it was due to something like an anxiety attack. As a semi-truck driver loading up at the Bellevue Safeway docks, he needed to get a ride to Harborview, so his boss drove him. They were so nonchalant and lacking urgency, they actually got swept up in conversation and got lost along the way. As all of this was happening, Exa, Sue's older daughter, was arriving at her mother's house as they had plans to meet up for lunch. Looking around, she found no one. Calling her mom's bank, they simply said someone had called in saying she wouldn't be there that day. Becoming worried, she called the local hospital. They looked through their ambulance records but didn't have her in the system. Eventually, they found the name and it had come up in the airlift calls. That's when Exa was told, I'm sorry, your mom is dying, and she left to be with her. Learning they would be losing their mother, Exa, who had stayed the night with a friend the night before, couldn't bring herself to see her mother in the state she was in, so she never got to say goodbye. Haley, Sue's youngest, needed to have that closure but didn't really get it. She went into her mother's room, but because of the tape, tubes, and machines, she was unrecognizable. Agreeing to pull the plug, Paul stayed in the room with Sue until she was gone. It was 11 a.m. Sue Snow, maiden name Chapman, was born in New Mexico on April 13, 1946. There was a lot to love about the spunky, frank, and adventurous Sue. She lived a life of spontaneity, which sometimes had larger consequences than others, like how at 16 years old she became pregnant with Exa. Making herself an honorable woman, she married boyfriend Jackie Clayton in the summer of 1963 and dropped out of school. But that was how Sue rolled. She reveled in how taboo it was to be young and pregnant before marriage, but it seemed like what all the cool girls were doing at the time, and she was nothing if not a cool girl. The marriage to Jackie was what you would expect for teenagers getting married because of a baby. Not good. So they eventually divorced. It was lucky Sue had married Jackie, though. It was how she met her brother-in-law by marriage, Connie Snow. Be it that Sue had caught his eye years prior or just dumb luck, Connie had a dream of being a musician and even had a record out. In 1961, Midas Records released his 45, one side titled Walkin' in My Sleep, the other, Darlin' Sue, 
a song he could never dream would be played at his darling's funeral 25 years later. Now married to her 11-year-older former brother-in-law, Sue was ready for a new chapter of her life to begin. Connie took a job with Boeing in 1966, and soon after, Sue and her daughter followed him to Washington. As a woman who couldn't graduate because of pregnancy, Sue quickly grew frustrated at how little opportunity she had in the job market. At just 20 years old, Sue took a bank teller job and earned her GED. Her work ethic paid off, and she soon started to move up the bank's corporate ladder. In 1971, she and Connie welcomed baby Haley into their lives. They were now a happy family of four. Much like Stella, Sue struggled with fidelity. She was flirtatious by nature, which was only amplified after having two children before she was old enough to buy booze, leading to ample short-term affairs, many of which Connie was aware of. Sue's, shall we say, inviting behavior wasn't just part of her personality. It was a tool she used in a very savvy way. The way she made male customers feel had them coming back to the bank, keeping them loyal. She became the preferred teller and would even go out to lunch with clients. Never dinner and never anything more. That anything more was reserved for Sue's co-worker, who she was having an affair with. And in a tale as old as time, he wouldn't leave his wife for her, so they ended the relationship. But it's not like she had left Connie for him either. Although the marriage did eventually dissolve when Connie learned of the extramarital relationship. They may have been split up, but it took eight years for the divorce to be final. Sue continued to work hard, earning more responsibility at work and raising her daughters while maintaining a co-parenting relationship with Connie. While there had been relationships since the divorce, there hadn't been anything serious. That was until Sue's daughter, Exa, introduced her to Paul Webking, her friend Damon's dad. It was 1978. For Exa, the introduction was simple enough. Here's my friend's dad. He should be friends with his son's friend's mother. Besides, it wasn't like Paul was an ideal match for the put-together and successful Sue. Paul had been married and divorced three times, was known to have a temper, and struggled to lay down roots in life, frequently moving around. This was probably due to the lifestyle he had grown up with. Moving from town to town as a child, it only made sense for him to become a truck driver as an adult. While on paper, the blue-collar trucker and white-collar banker didn't seem like a good fit, something about the pair just worked. They balanced out each other's personalities. Paul, known to be a bit of a Karen, allowed Sue to be cranky. She could come home from work, annoyed and exhausted from a day of presenting a forced, sometimes insincere, chipper demeanor all day. He would not only give her the space to air her grievances, but he would help to calm her as well. By 1981, the pair were living together, but not yet married. When the blending took place, Paul's 17-year-old son moved in with a friend. Haley liked Paul and was happy to be living with her new, would-be stepdad and mom while maintaining a relationship with her dad, Connie. Exa left to New Mexico for school. In September of 1985, it was discovered Paul had been having an affair with an ex-girlfriend, a discretion that nearly cost him his relationship with Sue. As they fought through feelings of betrayal and jealousy, they shocked everyone when just two months later, on Thanksgiving Day, they eloped. When talking later about having been the one to have introduced her mother and stepfather, Exa said it was her biggest mistake.
Before Sue was declared dead, Paul had called her twin sister Sarah to inform her of the emergency. Dropping everything, she and her husband ran to the airport. As they waited to board the plane to Washington, she was contacted again. Once more, it was Paul. And he was just informing her that they had gone ahead and pulled the life support. Her twin sister was dead and Paul had taken away her opportunity to say goodbye. She was shocked and devastated. The day after Sue's death, Haley didn't know what to do with herself, so she went back to school, a decision that would draw unwarranted criticism and judgment. She soon realized the only people who were bothering to be close to her were those who wanted to be friends with the girl whose mom died. That was hard enough, but without answers, she worried her mother's death was caused by some bizarre, unknown medical issue, maybe even a genetic one. She couldn't stop worrying. Would her mother's twin, her sister, or even herself suffer the same fate? Seeing as Sue was a young, presumably healthy person, an autopsy was conducted by Dr. Connie Flinger. Finding no visual or anatomic cause of death, the doctor was perplexed. Upon opening the chest cavity, the assistant coroner, Janet Miller, was hit with a wall of odor, a slightly fishy, bitter almond smell. Having dealt with a case of suicide by cyanide before, Janet knew what she was smelling. Comparing the intensity and recognizability to that of a skunk, she promised it's a smell one doesn't forget. A smell that, oddly enough, only 20 to 40 percent of the population can detect, which is why Dr. Flinger dismissed Janet's concerns. Even when Janet mentioned the Tylenol cases, Flinger ignored her. Instead, she continued to look for a cause of death. Perhaps Sue had turned on the sink and accidentally dropped her curling iron in it, but the lack of burns ruled that out. It wasn't until an investigator stopped by the autopsy that Janet's concerns were heard. She expressed her feelings once more, and a test was ordered. Sending Sue's blood out for testing, it was soon confirmed. Cause of death, acute cyanide poisoning. That's surprising that she isn't able to get that test herself, that she needed an investigator to, like, back her up. Yeah, I don't know if it was her placement, like maybe she was an assistant in training or something, yeah. or didn't have whatever, but... How frustrating. As we see, people in certain positions tend to get cocky about what they know. And yeah, very frustrating. Cyanide works by entering the bloodstream and attacking oxygen-carrying enzymes. The human body can handle small amounts of cyanide, like those we consume in fruit seeds and pits, lima beans, almonds, spinach. The body then processes it into thiocyanate that is then released through our urine. But in larger doses, the body can't process it quickly enough, and those ever-important, oxygen-rich cells are no longer being delivered. Basically, you suffocate from the inside. The initial signs of someone consuming cyanide are weakness, confusion, nausea, headache, passing out, gasping for air, and even more serious, it can lead to seizures, cardiac arrest, and eventually death. So if you ever have concerns that cyanide has been consumed, because it is in more stuff than you think, call 911, Poison Control, or your local emergency number. Sadly for Sue, even having Haley call so soon after she had collapsed wasn't fast enough. When she took the capsules of Excedrin that morning, it only took 10 minutes for the poison to be in her bloodstream. The toxicology report, completed on the 16th, showed the cyanide acted nearly instantaneously. Sue Snow's death was now a murder investigation. With police arriving at the house on the afternoon following her funeral, they wanted to question the family. While the timing of their visit was tacky, they were actually taken aback by the home alone energy of the people in the house, wandering around, yelling out pizza orders. 
Eventually, getting Paul's permission, the officers searched the house. They also requested a list of everyone who had attended the service, hoping it might lead to a killer that was close to the family. It was known that Sue had taken her daily Excedrin, which Paul said was used for the caffeine, her sister Sarah saying she never used it for that. There were concerns they had been the vessels for the poisoning. The sisters shared the fear of dying exactly how Sue did, via tampered medication. That same day, wrought with emotion, Sarah had a headache and went to take some Excedrin. Looking into the bottle, she was horrified to see capsules, a form she was certain Sue would never take, and she screamed out, What is she doing with these damn capsules? It's probably what killed her. While Paul explained that there had been an accidental purchase of capsules instead of tablets, he added in the same breath that Sue had loved the capsules. If that was the case, why did Sarah find a bottle of tablets in Sue's purse? All bottles of pills were removed from the property. With Sarah's persistence, the pills were tested. Nine had been poisoned. Amazingly, she was coherent enough after her twin's funeral to not blindly take the medication, or there would have been another family tragedy. Once it was confirmed the poisoning came from within the home, all eyes were on husband Paul. Besides the odds being in the favor of the husband doing it, Paul's behavior regarding his wife's death and the investigation was concerning to say the least. He made crude jokes, seemed uneasy, uptight. The grief, at least in the eyes of the investigators, was being handled in a strange and unexpected way. Looking closer, there were more red flags. This was Paul's fourth marriage. They had only been married for six months. He had had an affair. He was a long-haul trucker. She was a well-to-do banker. He even confessed to being the one who had asked Sue to get capsules instead of tablets. With just a few years between Sue's death and those in Chicago, it was all hands on deck for the investigation team from the Tylenol murders. They had another, or perhaps it was the same, killer on the loose. That's when everything went public. Sue Snow of Auburn had been murdered, poisoned. It was confirmed to have been from her pills. It was Chicago all over again. Panic swept the area. Bottles of extra strength Excedrin were pulled from the shelves. Bottles in homes were tossed in the trash. It was then Stella Nichol saw the report. Putting the pieces together, she realized Bruce's symptoms had been so mysterious and unexplainable that he could have also been a victim, especially with how much Excedrin he had been consuming. Running to the bathroom to look at the lot number, the one the news had read in case the tampering was occurring at the manufacturing level, she couldn't believe it. It was the same lot number as the bottle that contained the pills that had killed Sue. Lot 5H-102. This concludes Part 1. Be sure to join us next Tuesday for Part 2, where we'll learn all about Stella Nichols' life and find out who spoke to police, sharing information that would break the case and finally lead to an arrest. I find it utterly terrifying that you could just go about your normal day, buy some Tylenol, take it, and wind up dead. Yes. Um, and having not been, like a teenager or adult when the Tylenol murders happened, I find it odd someone had that fear, mm -hmm. you know, because now I have that. I only have that fear because you hear those things. Like, right. I, I would never take something that's already open. Um, but what a what a scary thing to go through as a nation. Yeah, because you don't think about it. And then it makes you think about anything. I'm, I think about that sometimes, not in a paranoid way, but just a wow, that could be possible of people messing with things in grocery stores you know you just well it's just like two you could take a, a half and half out of the fridge at work and somebody did something yeah. to it. it's 
it's just kind of scary that you can't trust everyone. Yeah. What people return to stores. Yeah. Does that end up back on the shelf? Does Sometimes. That... Yeah. Sometimes so not. I also I feel bad that I judged Stella so harshly. She seemed weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's really interesting what I found through all of this research is just how similar all four lives are of the four main players of Bruce and Stella and Paul and Sue. Just similar, li- you know, young pregnancies and multiple affairs and multiple marriages. And, you know, so in that way, they're just these average people. They're mm-hmm. just trying to live their life and take their headache medicine. It's scary. I'm interested to hear next week's episode. I'm excited to share it with you. Yeah. So do you what? I, I know it's still uh, somewhat vague, but we now have possibly two deaths related to this. Mm-hmm. Do you have any theories of where it's coming from since you don't? Have well, the case? it's the same lot number. So that makes me think it was in the manufacturer mm. that someone that worked there maybe did it. Vindictive employee. Yep. So I'm interested to see what happens mm. and I'll try not to Google it. Josh, do you have any theories? Off of the lot number thing, the same lot number could would be maybe in the same store, right? At the same time? Could no, be because this, this is how... no, this is lot like um, printed on the bottle or like but, in the plastic. But the same the lot could go to the same store, but it's going to be distributed. And it can go multiple. to different stores. Yeah, yeah. 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 Hmm. So it's either or at this point. I see. Yeah. It's a mystery. It is. And I'll be like, speak louder, you The one that has the tiny little butthole mouth. Please don't hit my foam wall. I'll do what I want, and that was your lamp, you bitch. <laughs> no, there's no capital period. S. You little minx. <laughs> <laughs> Some real live action in the studio, folks. <laughs> this is why we don't record it live. Editing on the fly. <laughs> so the idea of tricking people into getting high is pretty infuriating. Why do I use that word? I can't say it. I know, nobody can. <laughs> <sighs> Frustrating. Infuriating. Aggravating. Aggravating. Enervating. Oh my gosh, I left the candle on in the house. Oh, no, you didn't. I blew it out. Chili dogs. A boy queef? <laughs> Bweef. <laughs> A bruff. A bweefer? A bruff. I went off the rails and thought I could hold it. Excuse me. He had a proclivity for (laughs) proclivities back. He seemed to be in good health, and whenever they last saw, oh. (sighs) Do you need a mouth treasure? I should start doing that. Ow! Oh Oh, no! What is happening? I hit it with my elbow, and it's falling over. I I should start flirting more. (laughs) I was just being a little brat. Gaha. Spinach. Okay. Mm-hmm. Spinach. Spinach. <laughs> um, could I have the omelet with spinach, please? I'm going to start pronouncing it like that. Please See if do. anyone corrects me. I put the spinach in the microwave. <laughs> Sorry, I had a couple things that I knew I would need to get the sound of <laughs> the morning of because I knew I wouldn't remember Spin-notch. how to say it. Spinach. Spinach. <laughs> That's definitely it. <laughs> I love a good hearty laugh in the morning, Josh. <laughs> Cheers me up. So if you ever have concerns that... Ca- Kanye West. What? Cayenne pepper. <laughs> Kayaking.
Cheyenne, Wyoming. <laughs> Kite flying. <laughs> We're stupid. Oh, wait. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs>